UX Podcast Episode 257. You're listening to UX Podcast coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. Helping the UX community explore ideas and share knowledge since 2011. We are your hosts, Pat Axboom. And James Royal Lawson. With listeners in 198 countries and territories in the world, from Zimbabwe to Bangladesh. Ben Kroll is the Director of User Experience at Simplicit in Brisbane, Australia. He's the author of several interesting academic papers. For example, the role of electronic records in disability support and a new model for airport passenger segmentation. You might say that Ben is a person who enjoys looking at any problem through a variety of different lenses and perspectives. He's also a person who's stuck in the year 1992, literally. I mean, there's all these kind of references. The, the bit I read at the beginning there, Pat, it made me sound like in The Simpsons where he's going, you may know, know him from such <laughs> movies as... And then here it's kind of like, he's stuck in the year 1992. So we're building up almost like a I don't know, this big <laughs> film blockbuster. But anyway... The, I, the, I love it. The reason we're talking to Ben today is because he's the writer of a newsletter that takes a look at research papers and examines them from... Um, um, oh, examines them to draw fresh conclusions from a UX and design perspective. And all those research papers are always from the same year. And that year is, you guessed it, 1992. It's just like a movie. (laughs) 1992 is actually a great year. I was in my first year at York University. Um, I was listening to to Nirvana and, um, you know... Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine and The Wedding Present, which is my favourite band, they were releasing a seven-inch single every month for the entire year, 20,000 limited edition. So 1992 has a lot of, um, I know it has a lot of good stuff in it. Well, Ben, you've got a newsletter that's called 1992, and I guess it's not about my first year at university. It could be, but this one's not. (laughs) Um, So... (laughs) That would be a good newsletter, though, because I think a good newsletter is very narrowly focused. Um, and so that's why my newsletter, which is about like the history of UX, is called 1992, because the history of UX is too big. And um, years ago, I did my, my PhD, and I had this weird experience after doing that of trying to find something that I knew I had written about in my thesis. And every reference on the page that I wanted was from 1992. And that's Which year of, did you do your PhD? Uh, to, so in the very early 2001 and finished in late 2004. So sort of four years. Um, right. And it was about like weird intersection of HCI, like academic UX, and the engineering aspects of speech recognition, so like signals processing and things like that, and Luturian sociology. And that's why I have a bunch of references in this from 1992, because Bruno Latour, the French sociologist of science, wrote a bunch of stuff around that era. And I was drawing on that theory to explain 
how people talk to computers. And but so anyway, all the references on this page are from 1992. And so that stuck in my head as like, is there something about 1992 or is it just a meaningless coincidence? And, you know, last year, everyone was starting newsletters. And I was like, if I was going to start a newsletter, what would it be about? And so I remember this 1992 thing and I remembered my team where I work are up forever getting bored with me saying to them, you should read this amazing book from the late 80s or early 90s. It addresses this exact <laughs> problem we're having with clients. Mm. Um, and so like, all right, what if I could do, what if I did this like history of UX, but kept it so narrowly focused that it, it was like achievable. Um, that it, it didn't run away from me, that it would have an end or that it would mean that there, it just couldn't, couldn't become this hydra-headed beast. So it's, a, it's like all things, like it's, it's a little strategy for a newsletter. How do you know what your newsletter is about? It's only about things that are from 1992 that in some way are tangentially related to user experience. Is it wow. from 1993? It might be interesting, but it's not in the newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> And it really does work because a couple of weeks ago, James sent me the link uh, uh, to, to one of your newsletters. And he said, have you read this from Ben Crawley? He only does 1992. It was like, of course that intrigues me. Of course that I want to read the paper. I want to read the article. And, and I went in and I read, uh, it was the one about Lotus Notes. And it was like, this is wonderful. And it's, why is it so appealing? Why, why, why is that so appealing to us? W reading about something that happened, how long ago is it? 29 years ago. Oh, Jesus. I, I, did, I did think about that just before we started recording, so I already had done the maths. Um, I think it's appealing. Um, there's uh, someone whose who's real blog that I've read, he does newsletters too now, um, Venkat Rao has a, a fantastic blog called Ribbon Farm, uh, and he had this uh, Generations of Management post that he had written, and he's like, every... Period, there's these, these change, generational changes in management and um, the military thought leads business thought in management. So wherever the military is at now, this is his argument, um, that is one generation ahead of where, the, where current best practice or cutting edge business management is. And 29-ish years is like a generation. So I think the way that maybe UX designers think about their practice lags what was happening in the cutting edge academic literature by about a generation. Because if I was writing about stuff from 1992 in my thesis in the early 2000s, then I would have started teaching that to undergraduates in like the 20, early 2010s, like just before, just after that. So now those people are five to 10 year out practitioners um, of UX. And that's the most current theory that they learned and they're taking that with them from their tertiary study. So it's like, okay, maybe this is why, this is what's happening. And then like the secret of the newsletter is I say it's about, you know, news, this 1992 a newsletter about UX in 2020, 2021. It's actually about like business and about the weird choices that businesses make about technology that UX practitioners get asked to fix. And so that's why the, the Lotus Notes paper is so interesting because you read 
my summary of it, and if you if you want to, it's a beautiful paper. You can read the the Wanda Olakowski paper, Learning from Notes. She is talking about digital transformation. And if you work in UX, it's possible you work in an organization that's gone, we are doing digital transformation. Or if you're a consultant, you're probably helping organizations that say they're doing that. And all the things she is talking about in this 1992 paper, like when it was weird for these people in she's talking to to have computers on their desk all the time, um, is still the stuff that's happening now. And so to a degree, one reason I, write, I sort of wrote this one is like, I'm so annoyed that we haven't managed to get further past what Wanda Olakowski was talking about in 1992 with digital transformation mm. and understanding what it means to buy a big software suite and dump it into an organization and have this belief that it just sorts everything out. And actually, you haven't understood the work people do. You haven't understood how they imagine what this software does you haven't put any effort into lining those things up and then you wonder why it's failing and she kind of addresses some of that in this like 12 page academic paper i think another aspect of just that um paper or the other your right above it was is the the, the insights it gives you and reflections about um, um the the methods and benefits of research yeah I mean, you um, you, in, you point out the um, the number of quotes that she has in um, in the paper from from oh, the yeah. time before Lotus Notes. So they're rolling out Lotus Notes in this organisation, mm. and she interviews people um, before they've started the rollout, yeah, and asks them what they think about um, this thing that's going to be like dumped on them, as you said. Yeah, and they're hilarious. So the ones you've included, they, they're they're hilarious. The ones um, one of them is uh, what did she say? These remarks made by a few individuals a few weeks before Notes was to be installed on their computers. Um, all I know is the firm bought it, but I don't know why. It has something to do with communications. I've heard that it's a hard copy of email, but I'm not clear about what it is exactly. It's putting word processing power into spreadsheets. It's a network. I don't know how the network works. Where does all this information go after I switch off my machine? And this is the best one. This is my favorite. And she leaves it till last. It's a database housed somewhere in the center of the universe. Yeah. yeah. I, th I think it's fantastic. And it like, you, this is 1992. So much, yeah. It's 1992 yeah. and they're talking about the cloud. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Talk about the cloud without realizing it, but then there's the whole insight into human understanding of of, of technological shift, and and when you you know, you make that jump, um, and so 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 rewarding to see kind of like that that aspect of research how it can show itself up in these papers. But um, I really like that she's there's like eleven quotes in that section. I I didn't read. I read a lot of them. I didn't read all of them. Um, it's a weird choice as an academic or as a researcher in UX to just stack that many quotes. Right. Um, as like, if we were doing a report at work, we might do two or three to illustrate a point. Sometimes, like if on a journey map, you might put one quote per like step that you're trying to go, this is what someone said about, this is the illustrative quote about that step. And she's like, nope, 11. Mm. And it's just like that piling on of it. It just, you go, okay, I get it. And then it keeps going. You're like, 
O. And then that it's a database in the center of the universe as like this little kicker, because it's a choice she made to put that one last in that list. And it's like, yeah. right, people really have no idea what this is. And she, like she's a management um, researcher. She's not in UX or anything like that. So you imagine her playing this back to the leadership of this global consulting firm that she's mm. in. Um, and like, what would they think about this? Because I've done that into in, when I was an academic, played this sort of thing back to to management, and then also played this sort of thing back to clients now. And it's really powerful, but they also have to be ready for it. That's okay. They also have to actually be receptive that this counts as input. That's something we've talked about a lot about, actually, when, when students ask us, uh, how do I convince people to, to understand what the problem is? It's actually quotes. Quotes are so great. But yeah. even if you can then play back recordings of interviews, that is absolutely fantastic. And having video of people clicking in the wrong place that is what actually gets people to understand there's something wrong going on here with our product, which they weren't aware of before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. But the, the kicker here is, of um, course, is I agree with the frustration. There's so much frustration in realizing that we had the same problems back then. We have the same problems today. And as you've hmm. <laughs> mentioned in several of your newsletters, the papers actually don't give you the answer to what you should be doing and how you correct it. They They identify the problem usually. But you do some work in yeah. actually trying to figure out, so what does this mean for today? So, so what is it that yeah, we're learning, yeah. really? <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I do that because I think the paper is interesting. I think, you know, academic papers are interesting of themselves, but I spent four years learning how to read them and then another 10 years as a practicing academic using them to, as input to my own research, but also teaching undergraduates and graduate students how to read them so they could use them to make choices. Because an academic paper or a book chapter or something like that is a really specific kind of, it's a specific genre and it works in a particular way. And its job is not to give you the answer as a practitioner. One of the other things that I'm trying to do is show you how to do that yourself. It's like, here is a paper. It's about, it seems to be about this, but it's actually about this. Let me show you how I make that connection so that next time, if you as a practitioner come across something in the academic literature, you can go, oh, this paper says it is about this one thing, I found it because I have this question. Maybe this paper is going to help me think about this other thing. Like the Lotus Notes paper, this paper, the 1992 paper, she doesn't quite get into this. There's a follow-up from 94, I think, that she really digs into this idea that she calls, um, keep saying she, Wanda Orlikowski, um, keeps, she calls in the 94 paper, technological frames. And it's a, a an application of this idea of frames that she uses to unpack how people have different points of view about what technology does. And that as a concept, if you have that as a concept that you can think about as a practitioner, then you can do interesting things with it. 
So it gives you more vocabulary for having more sophisticated ideas. And that's why academic papers are interesting because someone else has done the hard work of inventing the new concept. All you have to do is go, I understand that concept and go and use it to explain the next thing to clients. And when I do that and when my team do that, clients think that we're really, really smart. And it's like, no, we just stole someone's idea that they had 15 years ago uh, and used it to explain why your customers don't know where the button is on this app. Like that's sort of what it's for. And so I forget what I said. Oh, this, this paper is actually about digital transformation because when organizations, or like an organization will buy, um, you know, a, a large customer relationship management suite from a place that has their own fancy building somewhere in North America. Mm. Um, the technical leadership of that organization will go, brush their hands, problem solved. We now have a world-class CRM. And then it falls down to a level in the organization where they have to go, well, what is this and what are we supposed to do with it? And why did we spend $20 million on this? And how does it work? And how do we change what we do now? And should we change what we do now? Then we as UX consultants, company I work for is more sort of like design strategists rather than like, you know, fix the website UX consultants. We get to a point with those clients where they are frustrated with us because we can't solve their problem for them immediately but ultimately frustrated with themselves because how did they get six months into a project, realize they need some consulting help mm -hmm. and still can't solve their problem. So I need a way to tell, in this case, that sort of client, the story about, well, how did you get here and how do you get out of this problem? Mm. And that's like, right, you're here because this choice was made and the way you get out of this is you stop and you think a bit harder about the work your your you're internally doing and the work your customers do, how that gets lined up, and then you look at what this suite you bought can do, and you use it to to fill over some of initially those pain points, and then you can start thinking about what new interesting things you can do. Mm. But you can't change the world without first understanding where you're coming from, and so that's I think all wrapped up in this paper sorry james no i was just, just reflecting again about how we, we've we joked over the years about how kind of like nothing is new um <laughs> you know especially when you've if, if you're from a certain generation of of, of uxer then you know there, there have been iterations of the same kind of things um they, things pop up quite regularly they just get yeah. kind of not necessarily rebranded they get reinvented a little bit so um it's interesting when 1992 again that you it's it's from a time where it predates cloud as you mentioned earlier it, it, it predates um internet as we know it um mm. you know around that time as i remember i think it was the year after the first time i opened up a browser and started looking at stuff from the university kind of lab so maybe two years later um and mobiles as well we're, we're still we're still in kind of like suitcase era of, um, of mobiles yeah but well, like you point out that the the underlying essence of of our understanding of of, of humans um, and our in, interaction with technology that's that's still very very relevant and very very similar it just needs to be reframed yeah mm. and and the way that we do work like the, what what office work looks like still looks the same you go to a well, you know in the before times you went to a place you sat at a desk mm. 
you made something, you gave it to someone else, they made something else from that. And at some point, you know, the, the world was different or widgets were produced or insurance policies were sold. And we're still, I think we're still building technology for the way that world worked and especially like business technology. So we're still building business technology with the idea that um, people are, people work by themselves and their work forms the input or output to someone else's work. And that relationship is clear and unambiguous and has a direction. And most of the time these days, a lot of people's work is collaborative it doesn't have a beginning and an end. Your thing, you don't finish your thing and give it to someone else. And then a lot on top of that, you have to do the work of explaining why what you did is work. Mm. <laughs> oh, the justification side of things. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And like that's another 1992 paper, um, artic taking articulation work seriously. And But the concept, to go back to like we reinvent things, the concept of articulation work comes from the American uh, anthropologists of work, Glazer and Strauss, who came up with that concept in the late 60s to explain what nurses were doing at shift handover. So Liam Schmidt and Keld Bannon uh, stole, like, appropriated articulation work in 1992 to explain how technology workers were working. But that's a concept from like 55 years ago and it's still not worked out properly today because every time you update a JIRA ticket or write down how you change the design system in someone's confluence instance, that's articulation work. Um, and that's still, to go back to like the Lotus Notes paper, when you buy JIRA or when you buy confluence, not to pick on those, but... <laughs> Um, but picking on them. <laughs> those are those are only just understanding how that kind of work happens, mm. um, and they're not quite up to what the pattern of that work really looks like when you do it. And so that's why, like, Jira is supposed to be the place you go to find out what work you need to do next. But any organisation that runs Jira. If you start new, for the first couple of months, you're forever having meetings with people about your Jira tickets aren't right, and we need you to do them this way. And then if you're filling out Jira tickets or responding to them, you will also then have to have conversations with people about what does this mean, and I thought we resolved that, and isn't this over here? Because you, there, there still needs to be articulation work around the articulation work. All of this, like, UX inside big enterprises is so often about like how the work happens rather than like, do you know where to click the button, which is what customer facing UX is about. Like we moved the button here and we, we made a hundred billion dollars for the company. Mm. It's like maybe you did, but internally we moved the button here and this one weird internal piece of paperwork got processed half a second quicker. <laughs> is a different story to tell. Yeah. <laughs> and this is what I'm taking away from your newsletters is that I'm realizing more and more this this focus that we have as UX professionals, 
the problem often is that I, I mean, I speak to students and they ask me, so what UX books should I be reading? Uh, and they forget, I tell them, you should not be reading UX books, probably. You should be reading books about other things because that is what helps you understand human beings and, and how the world works. <laughs> uh, whereas when we ap yeah. apply the same tools always, we always look at, we get tunnel vision, we look at this specific problem and we solve it, we small, <laughs> solve that, make it more efficient within that small, small frame set and completely disregard how it affects everything around it, the environment. Uh, and other things break down and you may not even realize that you caused that because you made something successful yeah. within this small, tiny area. Yeah, yeah. There's a famous book addressed to industrial designers and it starts, um, there, are, there are professions more damaging to the oh, world yeah. than industrial design, but only a few. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and... Like Mike Montero quotes that, and then he goes on to talk about UX designers and or visual designers, um, and about the, how the choices they end up having to make impact on on people's lives in unanticipated ways. Uh, so there's a lot of that in what I'm trying to think about um, with like going back to these papers from 1992. And in some ways, I'm sad I picked 1992 because there are other great years to talk about. <laughs> but there's good things in 1992 as well. There, like any good series, it, it always has kind of a second mm. season, a third season. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't think you're completely 100% locked into 1992. So we'll see. Sometimes I sneak in. Sometimes I sneak in. There's also this other paper that's about this that you should also read that's not 1992. So <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm exactly. hedging my bets already. <laughs> So what paper is next? Um, so far, at the time of recording, ask I think you've an done easy about question. eight. Oh, oh gosh, embarrassingly, not even eight. I think six. Um, no, there's eight. There's eight in the archive. Oh, there you go. Um, yeah. There's one that's not a paper that I can't figure out how to write, but this is a good place to talk about it. Do you know the Gartner hype cycle? Yes. Like it's oh, this yeah. sort of hockey stick graph. Mm. That comes from a weird... Uh, like management information systems uh, magazine article from 1992 and he oh, kind of wow. just hand waves his way around it <laughs> and he's like maybe this would be a way to think about it but it's not about like Gartner hype cycle is this all-encompassing thing about technology and I think um, it's only on a podcast it's not written down forever um, I think this is addressed in like a, an MIS magazine and he's talking about enterprise systems and like large-scale databases. And it's 1992, so a lot of this stuff is probably still running on like mini computers that have mm -hmm. their own mm -hmm. climate-controlled room. And he's like, here's how to think about this. And all the stuff on his hockey stick chart are like weird, old-fashioned mainframe operating systems about where should you position your company um, IT strategy about when you're going to move to this next cool operating system you've probably heard about. And then Gartner's taken that and done weird things with it. So that's one thing. Um, do you know people talk about um, design thinking is for solving wicked problems? Yeah. So there's a, there's a paper called Wicked Problems in Design Thinking by Richard Buchanan, which is from 1992. Ooh, and Wicked Problems dates to 1976. And Richard Buchanan uh, is a theorist of design. And he's like, this 
what people keep talking about this to him as an academic in 1992. And he's like, what would that mean? So I think that's the next one. Mm. But that is a, I've read that paper, I must have read that paper 20 times. Every time I read it, I get something else out of it. Every time I read it, I get more convinced it's not actually about how design thinking is for solving wicked problems. I think it's about, spoilers for the next issue of the newsletter, mm. how <laughs> trying to explain what design thinking is, is a wicked problem. Like it's a problem that has no stopping rule. And the more you understand oh. it, the more you realize your previous understanding was wrong. And so that's a bit meta because that's just what I said the paper is about. And it keeps changing my understanding of this. Mm. And I've met Richard Buchanan at, you know, like an academic conference pre-drinks thing. Mm. And all he wanted to do was talk about the band that was playing jazz at this drinks thing. And I couldn't ask him about the paper because by then the paper was already 18 years old or whatever. Um, but he is not a designer. He is a, um, a rhetorician. His mm. PhD is quite literally in ancient Greek philosophy and about how argumentation works. And so I was like, oh, there's like deep magic in how this paper is structured. Yeah, it's another Be layer. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so my problem is like, you know, it's eight issues or whatever. So I have to read the paper, think about it, try and summarize it in, I always set a goal of a thousand words. I always end up blowing way past a thousand mm. words and then say what I think it means today. Mm. And so they end up being two, two thousand, two and a half thousand words. I was like, how am I going to talk about this? And then we've just been busy at work and I haven't had a chance to sit down and read old academic literature at the moment. But that is probably the next one because now I've promised it here, I have to do it. Uh, <laughs> it's good to make commitments for things. It is. And well, I mean, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one. And I'm really looking forward, Ben, to you, <laughs> no to you doing more papers from, yes. um, from 92. Oh, oh I have a and big even list. I'm looking forward to a second series. I have series, a big list. So. I have a big long list. Yeah. It's like, that's the first one that I that's think is fantastic. Next. <laughs> I've never met anyone who's made me more interested in reading, reading academic papers now. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that. We'll suck you into a PhD at some point, Pam. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much, Ben. Thank you. Great. Thank you for having me. I have to say, I, I feel almost jealous of Ben for, for actually deciding on this niche because he talks about it as it sounds so easy when he says you ha just have to choose that niche and it's easier to, to work with from that and people become more interested in it because it is a niche. But at the same time, I would see, feel so afraid of it. So I feel like it's really brave. I feel, feel so afraid because I would be so constrained. <laughs> and in the end, he actually does say, I'm, I'm sad I picked 1992 in one way. But then he came up with all these papers and you realize with whatever thing you pick, there will be a never-ending supply of ideas to pick from. I'm almost, I almost want to start a parallel pod pair called 1992. <laughs> well, we just talked about 1990. We just talked about 1992. I mean, it, it's, this is what it's 360. Let's think about it now. 66 um, days. Oh no, how many days are there in a year? Leap year. Anyway, there's there's a lot of days in that year to go through. So you you, you do take one day of episode. It's oh, always something to talk wow. about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we just need backing. Exactly. <laughs> Do it at weekends. But um, I, I think it's very inspiring, really interesting, that, that whole thing of 
recycling or looking back at um, old ideas, I guess you could say, or old research, mm. and using that artifact to um, generate new reflections, um, new understanding in modern terms. Um, that's that's a wonderful thought exercise. Um, but also that everything too. modern, everything modern, comes from old ideas. All ideas are old, really. It's just putting them together in new ways. You just need to search for those old ideas. And I think it's really scary, the thought of forgetting the ideas. So what he's doing is also really important in in helping us reach back and understanding that the ideas have been around for a long while and there's so much to pull from, so much to learn. That whole thing where they were onto something, Mm. but perhaps the time they were in mm. didn't allow them to develop that thought fully because it was too early to have the thought. Yeah. So so by revisiting them now and looking at them again and putting the you I know mean, framing them from a modern perspective, you can maybe pick up those those ideas and actually develop them, which which is the whole the whole th- the way in which research and science and and this kind of stuff works, isn't it? I mean, we've we talked um with um Genevieve about Genevieve Bell about that some ideas that modern technology we use now is like 60 years old or more. It completely ties in with that. Mm. And I, I just love this concept of actually having this paper help me think about this other thing I'm working on because quite often I'm sitting and like banging my head against the wall just trying to figure something out. But if I just step outside of that moment, read something completely different and see if I can apply that concept or idea to what I'm working on right now, I usually find something. Mm. Uh, it's, it's just, it doesn't seem related, but it almost always is related. I can always take some piece of thinking from that other idea and apply it to where, I'm, where I am right now. It's kind of like, like fresh eyes, but like inverted, so keeping the same eyes, but you take, <laughs> you, you're looking at something else instead yeah. of a new pair of eyes looking at the same thing. Exactly. But I, I, I do find the whole twenty-eight, twenty-nine-year cycle thing really, really interesting too. That, you know, if we we map out the timeline that Ben was working on here, that um, he, in his work for his PhD in two thousand and four, he referenced papers in nineteen ninety-two. He then went on to teach some of the ideas and concepts that he'd re- worked on in two thousand and ten mm. to students who would then graduate and start working. Oh towards the end of that decade so so the ideas that were well research that was surfaced in 1992 is starting to enter the workplace at the back end of the teens so the teens of this century yeah <laughs> uh, so so that's a hell of a long that's it 28 29 years cycle at least mm. to, to get these research ideas out into something into the workplace yeah, it really provides a, like a bird's eye view of, of thinking around how long things actually do take because often we are so frustrated when working with technology and we're wondering, why is it this taking so long? I read this thing that happened. I mean, we've known, we've known this for so long, but the thing is enough people have to know about it for it to actually pick up speed and become something. Yeah, stealing old ideas and using it to explain new situations. Mm. So recommended listening this time. Um, I mentioned then in the outro one of the episodes um, but I think there's two that are really relevant to this and two reasonably recent ones um, episode 248 which was Evolving, um, evolving Organisations with Ulla Berry 
Oh yeah, that's a really good one. And yeah, given that we talk so much about um, Lotus Notes and and yeah. enterprise UX and exactly. you know, internal systems, then um, I think some of the organizational ideas that Ola had in that episode would be really useful. And the second one I've already mentioned was um, uh, Genevieve Bell um, and episode two four nine digital anthropology. Um, oh, that's one after the other. 248 and 249. Exactly, yeah. And we, there we really do go into this whole kind of like you know, recycling of ideas or stuff Stuff we're using now is from like decades and decades ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so both really interesting episodes. If you haven't already listened to them, listen to them now. Thank you for spending your time with us. Links and notes and a full transcript for this episode can be found on uxpodcast.com if you can't find them in your pod playing tool of choice. And remember, you can contribute to funding the show by visiting uxpodcast.com slash support or email us and volunteer to help. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Invisible man goes to the doctor. The invisible man goes to the doctor. Yeah, and doctor says, I can't see you right now. <laughs> okay. You don't get it, do you? Do you, do you not get it? The invisible I man goes to the it. doctor. Oh, you did get it. All right. Go to the, I thought it was awful. Fun. <laughs> well, it is awful, but no, I laughed. <laughs> <laughs>